Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Thanks very much, Kim. Good evening. Uh, My name's Josh. For those of you that don't know me, it's great to see you all here uh, this evening. How is everyone? Bit cold? Bit cold? It is cooling down again for the evening. It's been a while since I've been up here to open the Word with you all, and it is sure good to be back. A couple of weeks ago, we picked up our series in Acts, Unstoppable, How God Uses the Church to Change the World. Now, the book of Acts is traditionally referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, as it tells of how God used the Apostles of the New Testament to establish his church on earth. I remember one of my lecturers at college insisting uh, that this book had been named incorrectly, that it should have been named the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And he was right. As we read through and study Acts together, we have seen the Spirit move uh, and salvation has come to many. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles and the newly born church, the good news of Jesus has gone out into the world and has been unstoppable in its course. Tonight we're spending our time in Acts 12, as as Kim just read, uh, where we hear of Peter's arrest at the hands of Herod uh, and the comical account of his deliverance uh, by an angel of the Lord. Before we tuck in, pray with me, please. Father, thanks so much that we uh, can gather and we have this opportunity to worship you and to open your word uh, together this evening. Uh, Lord, be with us. Open our hearts and our ears to hear uh, from you, from your spirit. Uh, Lord, grow us and mould us to be more like Jesus uh, as we study tonight and go back into our week. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. Since picking up Acts again a couple of weeks ago, uh, we have seen the beginnings of the Gentile church. Peter confirmed for us that salvation was not for the Jews alone, but for all mankind from any background. And tonight we find ourselves in Judea, where there is a famine, as was predicted by the the prophet Agabus in Antioch. And that was at the end of chapter 11. And as a result, the Christians in Antioch had offered and collected food and resource to send back to the church in Judea with Saul and Barnabas to aid in the physical needs of the people. This is a prime example of the generosity that the church is called to in showing love to each other uh, by way of of, um, meeting the physical needs of each other. Reading on into Acts 12, we find Herod is violently attacking the church. On top of the famine that is being endured by the church and the rest of the people in Judea, they are now also enduring violent persecution. This is all at the hands of Herod Agrippa I, uh, who had assumed authority over all of Judea and over Samaria. We read quite briefly that James, who was a brother of John, son of Zebedee, and one of the 12 disciples, is executed by Herod, which pleases the Jews. This caused or motivated Herod to then arrest Peter uh, during the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover festival. While in Luke's gospel account, Luke, who writes Acts uh, that we read tonight, in his gospel account, the Jewish people are seen to be favourable toward Jesus and those outside of the Jewish community hostile. We begin to see a bit of a switch here now, though, whereby the gospel is being accepted and believed by those outside of the Jewish community, the Gentiles, and the Jews becoming the hostile force in competition 
with the church. And as a result of this hostility, Peter is put in prison and guarded by four squads of four men. 16 men versus one man. The odds of escape are scarce to none. Herod's intention was to make a show out of Peter's arrest uh, through a public trial before the Jews following the Passover festival. And so Peter was kept in prison and the church prayed fervently. The importance of prayer and of Jesus teaching his disciples to pray is a real highlight of Luke's gospel account. There are numerous occasions uh, where Jesus was recorded to have been praying to his father. And now in Acts, Luke has furthered this highlight by recording in at least 15 other instances the believers praying. One commentator writes that faith cannot live without prayer. And so the scene has been set. The church is praying fervently or earnestly, as other translations read. Peter is bound in two chains, sleeping between two soldiers who, is, who he is most likely shackled to. There are 14 other soldiers guarding the doors of the prison. Things are not looking too bright at all for Peter. It is likely that Herod is planning an execution for Peter, as he did for James uh, before. And this is something that Peter and the praying church would have been well aware of. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appears, a messenger from God. And the arrival of the angel is, if, is as if to suggest a new beginning has been born. All of a sudden, the execution that Peter and that we had all been expecting seems to fade away as a new destiny unfolds. With the arrival of the angel, a light shone into the cell. A couple of weeks ago, Kim, my wife, who uh, read for us before, she recounted in such dismay how she had been rudely awoken one morning by the slightest of cracks in our bedroom curtains, letting in a single agonising ray of sunlight sufficient to disturb her from her sleeping. I'm sure that we can all relate to mornings like this. And yet the light of the angel of the Lord appearing in a dark prison cell is somehow inadequate for waking Peter uh, and all of the soldiers guarding him. So the angel strikes Peter to awaken him and releases the shackles from him. It was probably wise of the angel to release Peter's chains only after waking Peter. I'm sure that if it had been the other way around, Peter may have awoken, awoken to the angel and given him the old left-right good night. It certainly would have been my reaction. Anyway, the angel tells Peter to get dressed and to put his sandals and cloak on because, of course, being properly dressed is critical during an escape from prison. Peter follows the instructions given to him and is taken out of the prison and out of the city, passing multiple sets of unsuspecting guards along the way. This is, in fact, not the first time that Peter has broken out of prison. Luke recorded earlier in Acts that the apostles had all been locked up for preaching about Jesus. And when they were sent for to appear before the Jewish council, the prison cell was empty and the doors had remained locked. This is sounding more and more like watching a couple of seasons of Prison Break. 
Peter finally realises that uh, what he has seen and experienced is in fact not a dream, but that it had actually happened to him. I think by the sheer ridiculousness uh, of this series of events, Peter is convinced that the Lord uh, had done the work in rescuing him. I've seen some of those magicians who can get out of handcuffs and manoeuvre their way out of other bindings or even a closed coffin. But Peter is a simple fisherman and assuming he was even able to get out of the shackles, he then also had 16 soldiers to deal with. So there is no way that this is possible apart from the Lord's work. The irony of all of this is that the Jewish community had gathered for the week to celebrate the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the Passover festival, a celebration that commemorates the Lord rescuing his children from the oppression of the Egyptians. It's interesting to note as well that Jesus was also arrested during the Festival of Unleavened Bread before being executed and raised to life, bringing freedom and deliverance from sin and the power of the devil. And after Herod's arrest of Peter, the Lord has brought Peter out of the oppression of Herod and of the Jews and making Herod and his guards look like fools. And so now in his new state of freedom, Peter goes to Mary's place where the church had come together for a prayer meeting. Out of astonishment, Peter is left standing at the gates while Rhoda, the servant of the house, went to share the good news of Peter's liberation. About 20 years ago, uh, my grandmother died and my dad, who was Paul, uh, he went on short notice back to New Zealand for her funeral. After flying from Adelaide to Melbourne and then on to Wellington, he made his way to Palmerston North where his parents had been living. He walked up to the front door and knocked on the door. His father, who was my grandfather, opened the door and said, hello, Paul. He turned around and almost collapsed due to, seeing the, due to the shock of seeing my dad uh, standing there at the front door. And so dad was left standing at the front door, waiting to be welcomed in, much like Peter currently finds himself. Peter probably feels like a bit of a banana, maybe even a little frustrated. He's just had this weird encounter with an angel. He's escaped from prison. He's walked to Mary's place in the middle of the night and is now knocking on the front door, waiting to be let in. And despite the fervent prayer for Peter while he was in prison, those gathered found it hard to believe that their prayers had actually been answered. The believers were sure that Rhoda must have been mistaken in what she was claiming, suggesting it more likely that she had lost her mind. Eventually, after the incessant knocking, the door is open for Peter to come in and the people are amazed to see that it really is him. I imagine it would have been similar to Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. Mary, 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 the incessant knocking. He eventually is let in. And so then, as a new morning dawns, the ruckus begins in an attempt to find Peter. After no avail, Herod eventually has the 16 soldiers executed for Peter's escape. Under Roman law, a guard who let a prisoner escape could expect the same punishment that the prisoner who had escaped was due. And so now after the execution, 
Herod travels to Caesarea where he is met by the people of Tyre and Sidon who are requesting peace and restoration between Herod and their two cities. Tyre and Sidon are on the coast of southern Lebanon. They have had an economic dependence on Herod's land that has gone on for centuries prior uh, to Herod's uh, coming to power. And the delegation from these two cities had come to convince Herod uh, to return to this status. And so Herod delivers his speech of reconciliation to them and is struck down by God uh, because he sought to elevate and glory himself, glorify himself instead of God. The pagan delegates from Tyre and Sidon uh, declared that surely Herod must have been a god and not just a man. It was due to Herod's permission of such comments that God struck him down in judgment. Intriguingly, it says that Herod was eaten by worms and then died. I find that uh, a little bit a little bit funny, I must admit. Imagine that this would have been a very slow and painful death uh, to be eaten by worms and then die. I'm sure you're all wondering why this brief narrative is included uh, in the story of Peter's arrest and liberation. I certainly was when I read this passage um, altogether. It is to show that sure judgment and punishment awaits any who stand in the way of the gospel. God will not permit this to go on. Further to this, it really is the capstone on the deliverance of Peter and the deliverance of the church out of the hands of Herod. Never again can Herod lay a hand on the church. And so now, following the death of Herod, the word of God continues to spread despite the challenges that God's people are faced with. The famine and persecution of God's people have come to an end. Saul and Barnabas return with the donations and resources gifted by the church in Antioch. And the persecutor of God's people is put to death where he can stand in the way no longer. The gospel truly is unstoppable. It withstood the test of famine across the land and persecution of the church and resulted in the growth and multiplication of the church. I'd like to suggest that Acts 12 features a chiastic structure, uh, that is, a series of events or ideas that are presented and then revised in reverse order. Uh, sorry, revisited in reverse order. By looking at Acts 12 through this lens, we see how the broader structure, uh, the broader narrative all fits together, and we can see the same pattern occurring elsewhere in the church both in the Bible but also in church life today. And we have it on the screen uh, for you. So A, the word of God spreads, bringing many people to salvation. B, the famine is predicted. C, violent persecution ensues. D, Peter is imprisoned. And then finally, E, the church prays to God. And then we see each of these ideas or events revisited. So E, again, God answers the prayer of the church. Then D, again, Peter freely travels to another place. C, violent, the violent persecutor is taken out, that is Herod. And B, the famine is relieved. And finally, the word of God spreads, bringing many more people to salvation. 
The structure is also called a, called a ring structure, depicting the narrative of a full circle. As the ideas or events unfold, they are then revisited before the narrative concludes. It's important to see this particular story in this light because then we get a clear picture of God's concern for our circumstances and the way that he addresses our needs. There was a famine. God dealt with the famine. Herod ravaged the church. God took him out. Peter was locked up. God set him free. The church prays to God and he answers the prayers by sending an angel to break Peter out of prison. I have three questions for us to consider tonight uh, from Peter's journey in and out of prison. They're on the screen for us as well. Number one, how do we respond to famine and persecution? Two, do we actually believe that God is as big as he says he is? And three, what do we do with the knowledge of our salvation and our deliverance? Firstly, number one, how do we respond to famine and persecution? Most of us in Australia would not be experiencing famine or the same persecution that the New Testament church endured. But what do you think the famine and persecution is in our 21st century Australian lives? Are we doing it tough financially? Are we struggling to make ends meet? Have you recently lost a job? Have we been challenged on our values or our beliefs or even on our heritage, where we've come from? Are we facing pressures at work or at university to conform to worldly opinions and values? These are just some of the, the pressures that we face in our world today, in our culture today. So how then do we respond to our famines and our persecutions? Reach out to our brothers and sisters in the church for help, both for prayer and practical help. And be ready to reach out to those who are in need of prayer and of practical help. We spoke at length earlier in the Acts series about the way that the New Testament church loved each other by ensuring that there was no need in the community going unmet. And we had that same picture kind of bookending this story, the church in Antioch. Uh, giving so generously to the Christian church in Judea. People literally sold the land and the assets that they had in order to give others in the church the things that they needed. This is the kind of church that we want to be here at North Adelaide, here at City Light. We want to be a church who looks for opportunities to meet the needs of others. We want to be a church with an attitude and a presence that invites people to share their needs um, and providing them an opportunity for generosity to be exercised. And as for persecution, there are still many places uh, around the world where people practicing Christianity, knowing full well that they could be killed uh, or locked away for it. And we as a church here in Adelaide, in Australia, we need to pray for those in the church that are being persecuted. Jesus said that the church should expect persecution for carrying the message of the gospel. His own life is an example of this. 
He was put to death. There may not be violence or acts of terror against the church here in Australia, but there sure are plenty of people who have colleagues or friends or even family who push back on them for being part of the church. Perhaps you can relate to this. Even as our culture and society pushes for progression and intolerant tolerance, the church is given an ultimatum. Either we bend in the breeze or we stand firm in our belief. We need to lean on the church in times of persecution. We're in this together. We're one body, the body of Christ. We need to gather together and pray for each other together. I think the easy option uh, when a Christian is persecuted uh, is for them to shy away from church community and involvement. Perhaps no longer uh, sharing church activities on Facebook or other social media platforms, or simply just not coming, coming along to our gatherings and events. Perhaps you stop going to discipleship group. But when we come around each other and lift each other up in prayer, who knows what might come of this? God sent an angel to break Peter out of prison in answering the prayers of the church. Praying for and with each other in times of persecution will encourage each other and build up the body of Christ. We need to have faith in God and his plan for us. No matter whether we are stuck, uh, struck with famine or persecution or 21st century equivalents, we need to stand firm in the promises that God gives us in his word. He will deliver us from our oppressors. He showed us that time and time again. He will give us eternal life because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And God will provide for each and every one of our needs. How will we respond uh, to the famines and persecutions that we face in this life? Secondly, do we actually believe that God is as big as he says that he is? You know, God created this world and everything in it with a word. If he was able to speak this world into existence, is he not big enough uh, to act in ways that we simple, feeble men and women may not be able to understand or explain? If God is as big and as powerful as he says that he is and as the Bible says that he is, then surely he can do even the unthinkable miracles. I think as Christians we know this in our heads, but the question I have is do we actually believe this with our hearts? The Christians that gathered at Mary's house to pray for Peter's safety and release from prison don't seem to have actually believed it possible for God to deliver Peter from prison. I think they had resigned to the fact that Peter was going to be executed as James had been beforehand. The illogical part about it all is that God had done it before. As I mentioned earlier, Luke recorded in Acts 5 the story of the first time that God broke Peter out of prison. The church had every reason to believe that God could deliver Peter from prison on this occasion and every reason to expect 
that their prayers could be answered. And yet, they still did not believe it possible for Peter to be the one standing at the front door in the middle of the night, waiting to be led inside. If we started to actually believe in the bigness of God and His ability to answer prayers miraculously, what would we be praying for? If we started to actually believe in the bigness of God and His ability to answer prayers miraculously, what would we be praying for? Would our instinct when sickness arises be to ask God for healing and for comfort? Would we be praying for a gospel impact in the life and the community of North Adelaide? Would we be asking God for the provision of the things we need and cannot foresee being able to afford? Would we be asking for the strength and discipline to beat our sinful habits and purge them from our lives? Would we be asking for a broken relationship to be mended and find reconciliation? What would we be praying for? Jedediah Copinger, a church planter and author, writes this. If we really believe God is big enough to meet our needs, then we'll pray. Moses prayed because he believed God could lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And what happened? Ask the floor of the Red Sea. Nehemiah prayed about the broken walls because he believed God was big enough to do something about it. The church prayed about Peter's deliverance the night before he was supposed to be executed because they believed God was more powerful than Rome. When God's people face their problems with a big God in view, they pray. What would you be asking for if you truly believed in the bigness and might of our great God? Without the bigness of God, there's no way that we could even come to know our Father and have eternal life with Him. If God wasn't as big as He is, then there is no way that He could have entered this world as a baby boy, growing up to explain the prophets and writings of old and to go on uh, to be executed in our place, taking on our sin and finally being raised to life as our Lord and as our God. It just isn't possible if not for the sovereignty and the might of God. This chapter of Acts really highlights uh, the sovereignty of God, his might and his power, his ultimate control over this world and the people living in it. Not only do we have a big God that answers big prayers, we have a big God who is watching over the world, watching over his church, who cares deeply for us and enters into our difficult and painful situations. We believe in a big God that can do the big things. And when we know that and believe that, what will you be praying for? And finally, what do we do with the knowledge of our salvation and deliverance? We know that in Jesus we have been delivered from our sin and from the death that we deserve. So what then do we do with this knowledge? We can share testimony of the good things that God has done. 
After seeing Peter free from prison, the disciples who were gathered not only were hearers of and participated in the testimony that Peter shared, but they were also told to share this great news with James and the brothers. David writes in Psalm 107, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them. Let whoever is wise pay attention to these things and consider the Lord's acts of faithful love. When we share of the great things the Lord has done for us, we encourage each other to carry on in faith and in the journey of life in this world. We spur each other on as a sprinter beside you pushes you to keep on running the race. What else can we do with the knowledge of our salvation and deliverance? We can rest in the fact that God is in control. If it weren't for the fact that God is in control of all things, Peter would have died in prison or by execution. In the same way, if it weren't for the fact that God is in control of all things, none of us would be gathered here tonight to worship our great God. None of us would have this new life in Jesus. Because of this, we can rest and be at peace knowing that our worries and concerns matter to God and that he will ultimately take care of us. This peace and this gospel confidence gives us freedom to take risks. Freedom to let go of anxieties that surround sharing the gospel with our friends and co-workers. Freedom to be bold in what we pray for. So take heart because God is in control. Encourage one another in the journey. One of the ways that we can encourage each other in remembering our salvation and our deliverance is to come around the Lord's table together. We can come and remember the goodness of God, remembering his bigness and the care and concern that he has for us, his children. As the band comes up, I'd love to read from Luke 22, uh, where Luke records for us the night that Jesus and his disciples first gathered around the table together. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after the supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Communion is an opportunity for us to come before God and to acknowledge just how much we are in need of our Saviour, Jesus. It's an opportunity to celebrate together, 
and with Christians everywhere that Jesus is the answer to our sin and to our condemnation. If you're visiting with us tonight and you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, please come join with us around the table. If you're here tonight and you're not yet sure about Jesus or about the Bible, this is the one part of our gathering that we reserve for Christians alone. Because it's a time where we remember the salvation that God has given us. If this is you, thanks so much for joining us tonight. We are super glad uh, that you're here with us. I invite you during this time uh, to remain in your seat, to think about what we've talked about tonight, encourage you to pray to God, ask him to reveal himself to you. Please feel free to have a chat with someone around you, the person uh, that brought you, or even myself, we would be more than happy uh, to talk with you or pray with you, both during this time and after our service. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much uh, that you are so good to us, that you deliver us from uh, the hands of our oppressors, that you deliver us from our own sin, the mess that we made. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this. And as we uh, come tonight to uh, share in your meal uh, together, Lord, remind us just how great is your love for us. Remind us of your goodness, uh, of the great sacrifice that you made so that we may have life. And Lord, when we face famines or persecutions in our lives, help us to turn to you, to lean on each other for support and encouragement. Lord, you are such a big God and we know that you do the big things. Remind us of this, um, especially, Lord, as we uh, eat this meal together. Father, burn a fire in our hearts so bright that we can't help but share uh, with others around us the love that you have for us, a love that uh, was, was best displayed uh, through Jesus' death on the cross in our place. Father, remind us uh, tonight and this week of your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.